Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Ross Gallagher. In today's episode, we're asking, will embedded finance bank the underbanked? When you hear the terms unbanked and underbanked, your first thoughts may well be emerging markets rather than your own community. But according to estimates from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or the FDIC, 5.4% of US households were unbanked in 2019, which means that no one in that household had a checking or savings account at a bank or credit union. That accounts for around 7 million adults in the world's largest economy. But according to some in the fintech industry, embedded finance may be the Trojan horse for financial inclusion and could be a real game changer. So today we've put together a panel of experts to discuss why are so many people still unbanked? What does embedded finance do differently and what's possible in the future? We'll discuss all this and more in today's show, but first a few brief messages, so please don't go anywhere. Your favourite fintech insiders are back in London for After Dark Homecoming. Join us at Village Underground on Wednesday, 21st of September, where we'll be taking things back to the beginning and recording our new show live. You can secure your spot now at 11fs.com forward slash After Dark. That is 11fs.com forward slash After Dark. We look forward to seeing you there. Okay, let's get started. As always, I am joined by a panel of amazing guests who can really shed some light on this very interesting topic. So first off, I'm joined by my 11FS colleague, David Barton Grimley, uh, Strategy Director for Embedded Financial Services here at 11FS. David, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Maybe you can start us off just by giving us a little bit of info about you and, and your role here at 11FS. Thanks, Ross. Hi, everyone, and uh, hello, world. So um, I really specialize in, in embedded finance and banking as a service. Um, and primarily, I'm helping financial institutions, so that's banks uh, and insurers, try to figure out what their embedded finance strategy actually is and then help them go to market with new propositions. Awesome. Yeah, lofty. Uh, it's a lofty remit. I love Hello World. Deep. Um, that's a really, <laughs> yeah, deep. That's a really nice way to start. Um, yeah, so as I said, David, awesome to have you. Um, next, we have a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Bruno Denise, co-founder of Spiralim. Um Bruno, listen, welcome back. Great to have you again. Maybe again, you can just give us a, a little bit of a reintroduction, uh, both to you and to, to Spiralim. Perfect. Yeah, great to be back, guys. Uh, well, talking a little bit about myself, I'm uh, also a consultant and Spiralin is a consulting firm focused on, on innovation for financial services, dealing with corporates and also with uh, international governmental bodies. Uh, dealing with fintech basically and myself i've been a consultant uh for for fintech for uh something like eight years right now uh, I, i'm also an author here in brazil so um got two published books uh one about uh, fintech and another one about embedded finance which i think it could be cool to share some insights here uh and also a teacher at uh, local universities here in, in sao paulo so glad glad to be here again Awesome, Bruno. Listen, thanks for coming back to share those uh, those insights and experiences. Really looking forward to uh, diving in. And then finally, we have Ida Rademacher, uh, Vice President at the Aspen Institute. So Ida, thank you again for joining us. And again, maybe you wouldn't mind just giving us a little bit of background on yourself and also on the Aspen Institute. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Ross. And it's great to be here. Uh, glad to join this, this, this group. It's going to be a fun discussion listening already. 
I I lead the financial security program at the Aspen Institute, and I also uh, lead up our enterprise-wide efforts at Aspen um, to think about the broader topic of inclusive economy. Uh, for those who don't know Aspen, uh, we've been around since right after World War II, uh, founded by uh, leaders in the private sector who really thought that that there needed to be in the uh, aftermath of such atrocities, a place where uh, private sector leaders could think about values, leadership, how they step up and deal with the critical in- issues of society and not just the critical issues of their business and, and how are they uh, engaged in that process. Over the years, we've really evolved our work and, and the financial security program is one of many of the programs at Aspen that are focused on a slice of those kinds of critical challenges facing uh, facing society. We tend to look at the critical financial challenges facing American households. Uh, increasingly, those challenges are, to your point earlier, looking a lot like global challenges in terms of uh, how households' financial lives uh, are uh, nece- not necessarily improving, even though the proliferation of uh, fintech uh, makes that possibility uh, something that we should really be grappling with uh, together. So it's great to be here. Yeah, it's incredibly important work, isn't it? So Ida, thank you so much for uh, bringing your sort of insights um, and perspectives to the show as well. It's really great to have you. Um, okay, great. Well, um, I think everybody's settled in. So let's dive into uh, let's dive into our, our topic. Um, so let's start by looking at why many in North America and, and sort of worldwide remain unbanked. David, maybe just in terms of setting the scene a little bit, you can just give us a, 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 a definition of what we mean by sort of the, the terms unbanked and underbanked. Yeah, so unbanked really refers to any kind of person, family, or household that doesn't have a bank account um, of any form. They don't have a bank account. They also don't have access to the credit system, so they can't get credit, they can't get a loan, they can't get mortgage. Um, they're relying on cash um, overwhelmingly. And I think, you know, it's a huge problem in the United States and all over the world. I think the World Bank estimates that roughly 1.7 billion people are unbanked. So it's a huge issue. And and I think in some countries more than others, you know, that can form actually quite a substantial percentage of their overall populations, right? Underbanked is very interesting because it's a step up on that. So, you know, they might actually have a basic um, bank account. They might have a savings or a checking account, but they still don't really have access to the financial system. So they still can't go ahead and get credit. They're relying on things like payday loans. They're relying, in some cases, on loan sharks. So although they are getting credit, it's overwhelmingly unfair. It's very expensive. Um, And I think I I saw a stat in the U.S. It's roughly 13% of the population in in the U.S. remains um, underbanked. So it's a a huge issue. And I think it's one of of the many things that keeps people in poverty uh, worldwide. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think not having access to those formal financial services... David, as I think you articulated so well, it, it really places people in a, in a vulnerable position where they can be sort of taken advantage of effectively. Um, Ida, as, as someone who's sort of looked at this extensively in your role with the with Aspen, I, I'd love to get your your sort of insights, maybe your learnings around what are some of those those major factors that really sort of stop people engaging with the, those formal financial services or sort of prohibit them um, effectively? Yeah, I think a couple of things to say there. We, we do start our work uh, with the focus on that demand side, on the household and understanding, you know, what are the ways that people uh, make choices or uh, have a lack of choices about how they navigate their financial life. 
and how that actually, you know, increasingly, as you all know, um, digital access and identity are the key facilitators of inclusion in any in part of the economy. Uh, those are explicitly the case for financial inclusion. Um, there's a couple of reasons. I would say that the banked and unbanked is actually a little bit less interesting to me uh, in some ways. Uh, the framing is a little bit outdated. Um, I do think that there is a, a an economic divide between those who have an abundance of choice and those who still have limited choice because the kinds of offerings they necessarily need are not necessarily lucrative markets, you know, to serve the small dollar savings places. Um, people who are living paycheck to paycheck don't have a lot of stored dollars to keep in a bank account in a way that keeps them from having overdraft fees or having to worry about uh, incurring additional costs. Um, and uh, similarly uh, with, with credit, I think one of the other things we've seen in the country is the, uh, it, there's a lot of ways in this country that you can actually end up with a very bad credit score before you've ever had access to credit because of unpaid bills, uh, medical bills, uh, because of fines and fees, uh, things that rack up, uh, even though you actually never actually tried to acquire credit. So there's a, when you back up into the reasons why, um, look, there's, there's, uh, there's trust issues with, uh, there's long-term, uh, uh, historic reasons that certain, uh, that black and brown households may not trust financial institutions. Uh, there is the relevance of some of the products. There is the, um, the geographic availability of some of those products. So when you end up looking at who is unbanked or underbanked, uh, some of that is a lack of access to the system. Some of that is a choice point. Uh, people who have had adverse experiences with the system than before who might be in a check systems flag, you know, are, are problematic. And, and the last thing I'd say about this is it's really important to have this conversation because increasingly as your financial life becomes the litmus test for your trustworthiness as um, an employee or um, a renter, uh, it means that the decisions that are being made about uh, your access to um, both mobility, economic mobility in the labor market or where you live in affordable housing are determined by this financial identity that you may or may not have had a lot of agency in shaping for yourself. Yeah, I mean, um, there's so many sort of important points out of that you bring up that I'd love to sort of dig into in a, in a, in a bit more detail. But I think the, the key takeaway for me there was that we're talking about unbanked, underbanked, but actually not having access to financial services. It's not just about not having access to financial services. Actually, the ripple effect is enormous and, and, and it's exclusion from so much more than just not being able to have a bank account or not being able to have a, a savings account. I think the other thing for me as well is what you mentioned about um, a credit score. It's I completely agree with you. You know, you can have a, a, a poor score before you're even aware about credit scores and, and, and sort of are actively transacting on credit. I think it's also like a bit of a a catch-22 because sometimes having a thin credit file or no credit file is at least as damaging as, as, as having a poor score. And then I think um, the point on the the sort of fee-based model with in terms of accessing checking accounts and all of that sort of stuff, um, of course, that's going to be exclusionary to, to people that can't afford those fees. And I guess one example that we've seen 
Um, Bruno might be Newbank, where actually their model has been slightly different. You know, they came to market with sort of fee-free debit and credit cards, and I suppose really have done exceptionally well in LATAM. Definitely, yeah. And Newbank introduced the whole concept of free uh, a fees front for for banking here in Brazil. Basically, was in a time Newbank New here emerged in 2013, and back then we we didn't have that much alternatives in terms of uh, financial providers. So it was it would be like very concentrated in the hand of like five or four big banks in Brazil, uh, and the costs also were prohibitive for, for most of the population. Even, even though that we had for, for the, the Central Bank of the Brazil, they created the decade, like in the last decade, decade um, so a special type of account uh, with no free fees on that, but it's limited because you can only uh, have a limited number of uh, uh, overdraft, a, a, a limited number of uh, why transfers you can make uh, and up to a point you start paying for it. So it changed a lot. And it was a time where the neo banks took the word by storm. I, I, I think that's not only in Brazil, but many other countries saw uh, something similar. Uh, so I think a new bank was very important in terms of on, not only uh, banks, the, the unbanked, but also bringing alternatives to underbank uh, due to the other bank here in Brazil, because there are lots of people that, for example, would have a, a, a checking account with a, with a bank here, with a state-owned bank, because they receive some kind of financial aid by this, this bank. There's a large one here called Caixa in, in Brazil, for example. Uh, and the whole thing changed uh, after we start seeing new players uh, providing access. Uh, I would say by the beginning of new bank, uh, they are not targeting that much like uh, uh, underbanked, uh, the, the unbanked population because it was kind of a very niche in the better version. They're kind of starting. Uh, but then as they progressed, they started including more people with this approach of um, uh, non-fee fee, uh, uh, approach on, on banking. So it changed it a lot. It is a very su successful case as well and opened the door for many other players uh, to go in this direction and offer uh, plenty of solutions here in the country. Yeah, um, and you know they started out with those debit and credit products, but then they've sort of expanded this out into savings accounts and personal loans and insurances. And you know, twenty percent of of new bank customers never had a, a credit card or a bank account before. So, um, David, keen to to get your thoughts. What what are fintechs doing right? now to bring, mm -hmm. you know, previously excluded people actually into formal financial services that maybe wasn't being done um, prior to that by maybe the more traditional banks? Well, it's, it, yeah, it's actually very interesting. I mean, I, I think it's almost a tale of, of two different worlds. I mean, you know, between um, the, the Western world, as it were, and the developing world, I actually think that in the developing world, there are some incredible examples um, of fintech working on financial inclusion. I think the biggest and best example that I can think of is M-Pesa, you know, which has now been around for forever. Uh, and I saw an amazing stat recently that um, something like 90 plus percent of the entire population in Kenya is on M-Pesa. And then, you know, you're talking about people that either didn't have a bank account before, actually, to, to Ida's point, that's almost not the point, right? Whether they did or whether they didn't is, is almost irrelevant. They are now able to receive payments. They are now able to get loans directly to their phone. They can convert that to cash. And that is extremely powerful. But 
Perhaps in the Western world, perhaps what we're seeing is maybe not as much emphasis on trying to help people. It feels like the problem statement is slightly different, right? Like in, in the States, you have people that have extremely poor credit files, and banks are actually making it harder and harder and harder for people to get access to credit rather than flipping on its head and thinking, how can we actually help people and provide new mechanisms uh, to get there, which I think, yeah. is, which I think is interesting. I, I completely agree. For me, one of the, the, the problems, right, in this context with how the banking model is set up today is that it seems to be an awful lot easier to get into debt and then into problem debt than it is yeah. to actually build wealth, right? And being cynical, you would say that actually, well, yeah, that's because of the traditional banking model, how they make revenues, et cetera, et cetera. They're pushing credit products rather than trying to help you build those more sustainable habits over time. Um, I think, Ida, in your previous, um, what you said before, you sort of, I think, brought to life some of those those real-world issues around sort of being unbanked. But I guess my sort of next question to you really is, how crucial now is it that we start to address this problem? Obviously, facing into a global cost-of-living crisis, people are going to get even more squeezed, right? So some of these problems are going to become even more acute. So it is right that we're having this conversation, right? And that we start to think about these things. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, two things on uh, what folks have just talked about. I do think that uh, tipping points have happened in the US, right? The, the amount of free accounts, even from traditional financial institutions, there is now a, a new baseline where that is, that is happening. That doesn't erase a legacy of distrust or an experience of the past. So there's work to do there, even though uh, the way that FinTech and challenger banks have come in have, have driven new um, norms in the sector in terms of uh, where and how they serve lower income populations and where those fines and fees uh, don't serve uh, a market expansion opportunity. Uh, I think the other thing, though, it's interesting. I do think that there are differences in developed and and developing uh, use cases. Part of that, though, is just the amount of historical legacy infrastructure um, and systems that are very hard to shift because there's so much of a, a legacy, which is, I think, why the embedded finance conversation we're going to get into is so interesting as, as truly maybe the first era of fintech that is disruptive to old models of, of, of both revenue and service um, uh, in terms of who might be served better. Um, I think for us, we, we put everything about inclusion in the frame of not just access to an account like M-Pesa, um, but uh, at the end of the day, to the point about banking service, uh, our definition of financial inclusion is people are able to access, utilize, and reap the benefits of uh, that service. So we really want to look at outcomes. We want to look at is somebody's financial life more stable, less precarious? Uh, does that facilitate greater well-being in the rest of their life? Um, I think we also flip on its head the whole idea about when you say, you know, financial inclusion and why it's important right now. I actually think that COVID uh, and a global pandemic uh, showed that uh, we often think about economic growth trickling down to households. Uh, we certainly saw when everything changed overnight that the financial stability of households was actually the bedrock of broader economic growth or lack of it. 
And so I think that it inverts the priority of where we actually think about household financial security and household financial inclusion as part of the infrastructure we need for dynamic, sustainable global economic growth over time. So, you know, I, I don't want to stay at the 30,000 foot level, but that's why the conversation changing now combined with different kinds of technology, combined with new entrants, combined with some of the underlying need of traditional financial institutions in partnership is, and, and all of that because of the tech that has put this directly in front of a user experience and improving that, I think it, it really gives us an opportunity uh, to take a, a great leap forward together. And uh, there's more stakeholders that need to be on board with that. But I, I think that um, we have a lot of ex examples in the data uh, globally and domestically in the U.S. about how the pandemic uh, put this issue front and center. Yeah. I always like to finish that the first section on what's, what's wrong on a note of optimism. So I think, Ida, you've given us the perfect sort of jumping off point um, into the next section, sort of looking at, you know, why embedded finance could be the answer. So... David, I'll come to you again. Yeah. Just to, just to set us up, I think, could you give us just, a, again, a, just a bit of an overview of, of how embedded finance sort of looks in this context and why are people optimistic? So what embedded finance is really trying to do is it's trying to find new data points where people are transacting, where they're living, where they're trading, and where they're moving. And there's, there's more examples of that, right? So the, the fundamental underlying need that the person is carrying out the data that they are then producing as a result of that, and then how they can be eligible for a financial services product on the back of that, and then to deliver that financial services product immediately within the journey that they're that they're going on. And it really does flip banking completely on its head, right? Because a bank, a banking provider is basically saying, Well, I have a product. If you pass these checks, sure, I'll give you that product. But an embedded finance provider is basically saying, Actually, by providing this person with a product, with a cash flow financing product, for example, or an insurance product, it is going to help them carry out the fundamental job that they're trying to do better. And in doing so, they're going to remain inside our platform and inside our marketplace. And this is where the, the business model really, really comes to, comes to life. Um, and there's so many examples of this all over the world, um, but, but I think the kind of canonical example that everybody uses uh, that I hear again and again is Grab in Indonesia, for example. So you have, you know, huge populations of people that, that work within the gig economy or the informal economy. And in order to, um, I don't know if they want to upgrade their motorbike or if they want to buy a taxi or something like that, Grab is actually the best um, provider to provide them with that financial services product. So Grab really isn't actually looking. They almost don't care. I mean, maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but they almost don't care so much about what's going on outside of the ecosystem. But what they can see is they can see that this person is economically productive. They can see that they are carrying people to and from a destination. They can see that that is growing, and then they can go, ah, okay, I have a data point here that a bank does not have access to, which gives me the right to provide a fair financial services product, which can actually help lift that person either out of poverty or provide better outcomes for their families, which I think is extremely powerful. Yeah. And they're using like, you know, dynamic models, real-time data to actually understand affordability, risk, et cetera, rather than the sort of static old uh, credit reports that are often sort of up to a couple of months out of date at any time. And I think it's a really yeah. powerful example. Um, Bruno, you know, sort of building on that, um, grab example, 
what are some of the what are some of the standout examples um, that you've seen of maybe where this is uh, this is working well today? Yeah, definitely. And when we look at uh, Latin America, I think there are plenty of cases. And the most important value I think that the whole embedded finance discussion brings is just like merging uh, finance and possibilities into the you know the daily journeys of different people. So that's that's crucial here. Uh, and here in Brazil and even in Mexico, we, we see so many interesting cases. Uh, for example, there's a, there's a retailer here in, in, in Mexico called OXO, and basically they have something like 20K uh, different stores around not only Mexico, but, on, but also in Brazil. And they created recently a new product called Spin. And basically, they in, in two quarters, they reached 3 million uh, different clients. So they are you know, keeping including new people. And also, they, in their stores, they had opportunity for people to do the cash in and cash out all of that uh, physically. So for a country like Mexico, where you don't have a well-established uh, real-time payments uh, infrastructure, that's very important as well. So I, I really think that it breaks the barriers that we see uh, between most of the customers and the traditional financial institutions, which are still very, very, very relevant uh, in, in, in emerging countries. Um, so there's this case in Brazil. There are other cases of retailers uh, creating incredible, awesome products. And not only that, but understanding the different uh, specific details of the life of like gig economy, economy workers uh, and providing uh, solutions that are suitable for them. Uh, there is an, an awesome case that I also like to recall is the, the one from uh, there is an embedded finance provider here in Brazil, uh, banking as a service provider, and, and they did something with uh, uh, a company focused on cosmetics, like door to door uh, selling of cosmetics. Um, there are so many consultants, so women and, 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 and guys that sell, that sell these products and they are able to offer like a POS machine. Uh, for them to receive it, receive the money, and also some specific credit lines. And they ask it then, okay, what are your, your, your dream uh, of something that you want to do in your life? And most of the, of, of the people using that, the sellers, they told that uh, reforming their bathroom was the, something that they dream of. So it's not only about the credit, the money itself, but what do you do to enable dreams out of this credit line and everything else. So they managed to create a specific product for that and made a partnership with a, a construction company that provides the materials and all of that. So that's, that's, that's a very cool way to understand the actual needs of, of, of people uh, and translate that into reality uh, and give different alternatives and at customized uh, pricing as well. So many, many different cases popping out and uh, that's very cool to see in emerging markets specifically. Yeah, and, and powerful tools, I guess, in terms of like engaging or re-engaging those people that hadn't been engaging with those sort of formal financial services. I especially actually, Bruno, the example that you gave of sort of the, the cash in, cash out options. I love those examples because as we talked about earlier in the show, you know, those those communities, those underbank communities are often very reliant on cash, right? So giving those uh, giving those options, I think, are really powerful. Um, Ida, I think it's in the foreword to Beyond Good, you wrote that um, the purposeful application of technology can be the catalyst for greater social inclusion 
and equity. And I think it's such a, a powerful statement. I wanted to sort of call it out and really just sort of ask you to to expand on it in your thought process, because I think it's really powerful. Uh, yeah, I I would say I'm not a 100% a technological optimist. I, I think that the, the long run arc of whether the giant steps forward it with technological capacity actually delivers on greater inclusion is a is a leadership choice uh, and it's a leadership choice in venture capital it's a leadership choice in private equity it's a leadership choice in how long do you stick with um, uh, some of the social impact goals of a product in a growth phase uh, before uh, the market pressures strip out some of the potential uh, you know, functions of a product that actually made it useful for, um, a generation or a population that hadn't been served before is the capacity there. And I think again, with embedded finance, where the disruption is happening, the ability to locate the service, uh, is already thinking much more about the user experience and, and timing the delivery of um, an on-point product to a need that you understand that customer to have is great. So, I mean, I think we can talk all day about the possibility. I think we have to hold ourselves accountable for what needs to happen at this very design phase in terms of the broader conversations about the priority of inclusion to make sure that technology is in service of that goal, not as a byproduct or as a nice to have uh, that may or may not uh, end up happening, uh, but front and center. And I just say that because the, you know, you hear it every, everything from, you know, Peter Thiel to, you know, acro- across the board, you know, fintechs, fintechs opportunity in the last generation of it was to do greater inclusion. Uh, the reality was, uh, markets that are very well served got a lot of additional choice and a lot of apps on their phone and the proliferation of, um, one off products and services. Uh, means that people actually had even more uh, personal, not just dilemma, but, you know, navigation. Some populations had a lot more to navigate through and make choices about, and some actually didn't have a, a lot of additional. When we, when we look at the, so when it comes to inclusion, and I, I, don't, I don't want to go on here forever, I think in every technological advance, in financial services, it usually happens in two places where the revenue models have been clear. In lending, where there's access to credit because that transactional point, and that's that's an understandable revenue model. And then, you know, in some cases in long-term investing, right? Very different models, but we know where money gets made. Um, and we know that those are critical functions for a household. The reality for most people that we really are thinking about in terms of vulnerable populations is you know, they're dealing with income volatility. They're dealing with routinely positive cash flow. They're underinsured. They're undersaved. Uh, they need, um, not just access to more and more innovative financial services delivered on time and in place. They actually need, we need to think as much about, um, you know, the, how do we think about labor and non-labor income and how it's delivered and the timing of it? Um, and so I don't want to think that it's a panacea that financial service evolution is going to solve the problems for low income and vulnerable households in the U.S. or any place else. Uh, if we're dealing with still a fundamental income problem, we can't fix that with financial service innovation. Um, but financial service innovators 
have got to be at the table to be part of that solution because payroll and payment systems are going to be the rails on which any other kind of um, solutions are going to be delivered. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with all of that. I think, David, I'm keen to give you the sort of final word on this one. I think Ida's laid laid out those challenges, I think, really, really well. One of the things I think that Ida's done really nicely as well as we've gone through is sort of draw that distinction between the access and then the decision points. And I think um, a lot around the decision points in terms of trust. Do you think that embedded finance can maybe start to bridge some of those um, issues specifically in relation to trust and start building up those trusts within those communities to start engaging um, either start engaging or start engaging more regularly? Yeah, 100%. Um, but I certainly think it requires a lot more development, or certainly we're in the very early stages of this of this kind of thinking. I mean, there's a great example in the US with a company called LiveChair, uh, who does um, health insurance for the African-American population and the distribution channel in that case is through the barbershop, right? So, you know, if you trust your, your barber, and it's somebody that you know very well, why can't you trust them um, to help deliver health insurance? Um, and that particular population is extremely underserved when it comes to health insurance, as is, as is the wider um, United States. So shifting the dial from a financial services provider who you, you see and a lot of people around the world do see as a very passive, sometimes a very aggressive um, provider to different channels, uh, different providers and different brands that you would trust maybe uh, to help you, I think is very important. There is also huge risk when it comes um, to something like that as well, because some of these new providers can become very monopolistic in some ways. Yeah, and I think in um, developing countries, if you create a marketplace where that marketplace no, where it didn't exist before, you have yourself a captive market, right? You can start by providing very fair access to credit, and then before you know it, in order to make profit, you know, your point either about um, priorities with VCs and stuff, they can start saying, well, actually, we want to double the interest rate. No profitability isn't right here. And before you know it, those customers have absolutely nowhere else to go. Um, so you can still have some of the same issues coming back, even though we have an amazing opportunity here. Yeah, so risks. But I think what that example certainly does for me is sort of actually illustrate really nicely the importance of trust, right, in encouraging yeah. people to to sort of engage. Um, and those distribution channels, right, I think are incredibly important. Um, I'm looking forward to getting into the next section where we sort of spend a bit of time looking at what's possible in the future. But I am just going to take us uh, to a quick break. Um, so we'll pause here and we'll be back very shortly. Hey, folks, the first ever 11FS Awards are coming this November, and we need you, our listeners, to get involved in the nominations. Let us know who you think are the industry game changers, the biggest rule breakers, and the best leaders. Nominate your favorite companies worthy of recognition over 14 different categories right now over at 11FSAwards.com. That's 11FSAwards.com. Get your nominations in before midnight on Monday, 19th of September, then join us on November 16th to celebrate the best and the brightest in the fintech and financial services industry. Full details on 11fsawards.com. Okay, welcome back to the show. Um, let's now dive into how embedded finance will continue to grow in this space. Um, I guess, Bruno, coming coming to you first this time out, how do you see the, the sort of adoption of embedded finance moving forward? Where do you see some of those those real opportunity spaces? 
Fantastic. Well, I, I see that uh, we are going to unlock so many different possibilities in the market. There are some cool cases already happening here, uh, especially, especially in Brazil. And I will give you an example uh, talking about embedded insurance. Okay, uh, There is a company, there is an insure tech that provides the different journeys and they operate along with companies from various sectors, enabling as a uh, insurance as a service provider. And they created a, a solution for a parking app we have here in Brazil. So when you are in the streets, you just put your car for parking and then it start billing. Uh, and they created a specific insurance that when you uh, stop the car, there's going to be a push notification uh, asking if you can pay 50 cents uh, to insure like about to 1000 Brazilian reais here uh, worth of uh, things that we have inside the car. So it's just like that's a type of solution that it's not something that you 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 are in your house and pr prior to you getting out, you say, OK, I'm going to to get this. So when you have this kind of solution uh, with contextuality, where you are going uh, at the same moment that you feel that you need that in a very ex inexpensive uh, value, you end up creating a, you know, a whole new world in terms of uh, access, in terms of short-term insurance. Uh, and when you look at landing, for example, sooner or later, you're going to have like a very short loans uh, for gig economy workers, for example, if you are a rider and Uber or any type of ser service, you can perhaps uh, get a loan by Monday and pay that by Friday. So, so many different types of, of new and interesting solutions that can only happen within this a new word that this new logic that we are getting into and my latest book is called the new financial logic because that's that's the the case because uh before you use it to uh start consuming financial products with someone that carries the label of financial service provider but right now you're entering an era it's a new logic you can basically do that in different occasions uh, on the fly as you go. Um, so I'm very optimistic because of that. And, and just to finish the situation about this, uh, this uh, embedded insurance case here, you have Tokyo Marine as the insurance company that is like ensuring all that all that happens. So we have an incumbent, you have an insure tech, and you have a company for a parking uh, like app uh, all together enabling new, new different uh, types of uh, solutions. So I think that's going to be incredible if we like connect all the dots and bring new value proposition for different types of uh, consumers um, all, over, all over the world. So, yeah, D David, I guess what's um, what's exciting about this space and I think comes across in what Bruno sort of said really, really well is that going forward, there's almost as many or maybe as many use cases for embedded finance as there are just things that people need to do in their day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and I also I also think what's wonderful about this is the ecosystem, as you were saying, Bruno, you, you're talking about you know incumbent providers, new fintechs, um, brands cooperating together to come up with entirely new solutions, um, moving into new market verticals. So it's an incredibly dynamic market. 
I think one of the pitfalls, though, um, and I th- particularly when thinking about embedded um, insurance, is making sure that you're embedding it at exactly the moment of the customer's need and not creating too much cognitive load, right? I think this is one one of the things, right? Because you could, you know, when imagining this, you can think of all sorts of different needs that a customer might have, but fundamentally, you really need to get that user experience nailed. Like, is this relevant to the customer at this particular moment and in, in time? And if not, when could it be? And how do we use our data um, to to maneuver? Uh, so I think there's lots lots of interesting things to think of. But but I still think as as excited as some insurers and some banks are that most of the 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 demand for this is coming from digital platforms. You know, some of the examples that Bruno was mentioning, you've got a lot of excitement in the digital platform area saying, listen, like, there's just so much data that we have, which means that we can create these really interesting financial services products. But in a lot of cases, they're rubbing up against some friction when it comes to talking to banks and insurers who are going, ah, this is really interesting. It's going to be really hard. We don't have the APIs. We don't have the tech stack available. Should we not just go back to our world and you know serve our customers in our traditional way? Yeah, absolutely. And, and and David, kind of sticking with you, we've we've sort of referenced a, a lot of the examples that we've brought up um, have been sort of insurance focused. Do you think with all of the sort of um, the 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 access to the enhanced data that we're sort of talking about, do do insurers tend to gain almost sort of like disproportionately relative to other financial products in an embedded finance context, or is there just sort of more ground for insurance products to make up in in this space why do you think some of the the standard examples we're seeing are sort of insurance based well i think some of the digital platforms are seeing that you know when you embed insurance into their flow and bruno can probably chime in on this like they're seeing um like wild profitability and in fact, in some cases that, you know, if, if you think of a super app or a marketplace that all has all sorts of features and functions, insurance really is up there as the top two, three, four profitable um, products that they that they have. But when it comes to financial inclusion, that is a big question mark. So the point that Ida was making um, earlier on about underinsured or overinsured, um, you know, in a lot of situations, if you're buying an insurance product on a checkout flow, for example, you know, you may already have travel insurance in a different in a different part. You know, if you're if you're buying uh, insurance uh, when you're in a car park, hey, you may already have car insurance somewhere somewhere else. So, like the the this is a big problem, I think, within with insurance is getting that. You know, does the customer fully understand their insurance that they have and that they don't have? And I think that's that's probably an issue to be solved. Yeah, and I'd be keen to sort of bring you in here, right? Because obviously the focus here is sort of inclusion and all of that sort of stuff. And I suppose picking up on David's point, which I think is an important one, especially if you're dealing with consumers that maybe don't have the highest levels of financial literacy, how do you start to mitigate for some of those particular issues? Do you start small? Then once you've got them engaged, sort of what comes next? Yeah, I mean, I, for me, I'm going to, again, reground it in what we know are the, the trip-up points for a lot of households that are in one way or another underserved in this space uh, with, the, with the right products at the right time. I love the uh, move toward the potential for insurance innovation here. I think that we have, for many years, solved a lot of problems for households that need to be solved with insurance innovation with access to credit. Uh, When you are dealing with a household that's going to be facing a financial shock, uh, either from an income disruption or from an expense disruption, 
if they're already financially precarious, the extension of credit uh, with no good way uh, to, and, but they're actually insolvent at the end of the year, not just lumpy in their income, it's not the right product. It doesn't pool risk. It continues to keep risk at the nuclear unit of the household. So the idea, uh, and insurance is very hard to understand, especially single agent, you know, selling to a B2C insurance product has always been difficult to sell. Contextualizing it, making sure that it's the right product for the moment. Um, you know, we would love, I know a lot of folks in the world that I'm in would love to help to solve for that. I think of, we often think about a two by two matrix of, um, you know, the likelihood of a shock and the magnitude of that shock. And what's the array of experiences that fit into, you know, high expense, uh, high probability shock versus, you know, you know, low expense, high probability shock. Some of those really are lend themselves to an insurance solution. And there's so much room for innovation there. Um, and it's the right, it's the right kind of product. Similarly, we, you know, if you move to the entire other end of the spectrum in the pensions world, uh, annuities have always been very difficult to, uh, that you, you sell them, people don't buy them, right? Because they're never sure about the need for that and why would they tie up their money. Um, annuity is probably one of the most important things to think about as an embedded finance opportunity. Um, and to think about, you know, again, I read someplace that the, you know, the under insurance and the um, under pensioned you know, those are over a hundred trillion dollars each globally. You know, those those are real opportunities that speak to financial security for households and that speak to a market opportunity. Um, doing them right is uh, an exciting uh, conversation to be having, and it's an exciting place for people to do exploration. It doesn't mean that I understand what the revenue model is going to be that makes that sustainable for the business, but um, that's where that's where getting people kind of on board. The you know, just like climate change. There's, you see a lot of different innovations, even in policy incentives to solve for something. Um, most people, when they think about innovation in um, kind of technology, they're like, well, how does that impact a climate, you know, a, a climate outcome? There's ways that that's built into ESG. We don't have the same kind of thing to assess. How would you potentially create subsidy to invite additional market innovation in to solve problems for financial security. You know, if we think that inequality and climate are the two big issues that we have to face as a global society these days because of their potential to undermine so much of not just a government and democracy, but economy, then we should make them similarly urgent and accountable and ambitious in terms of how we connect the dots and align incentives among the different players that would need to deliver because the embedded finance opportunity here is real. Um, the ability to build uh, not just siloed products in the user experience, but platforms, you know, figuring out, figuring out how buy now, pay later helps people pay for groceries, you know, would be an even more fundamental thing because they may not get paid till the end of the month, but they need groceries now. Can we apply this to some of the social issues that we know are happening uh, that matter to people being productive members of the economy? Yeah. And, and I think that's very much where we're at. I mean, big societal problems that need to be tackled head on. I think embedded finance offers an opportunity to do that, but there are still some big and, and, and complex issues that need to be resolved and questions that need to be answered um, before we get there. I'd love just to sort of finish on a, a quick fire. I'll go around to each one of you, just bringing it back to that sort of very first question that we posed at the top of the show about will embedded finance bank the underbanked? I guess it's a it's a barometer on how bullish we are. 
Um, but I'm just going to go around um, the virtual room very quickly and just a, a very brief, uh, a very brief response from each of you would be great. Um, David, let's start with you. Yeah, I think it. I think it definitely can, um, and I think it can in different ways. I also think it'll change the very nature of what we mean to be banked. Um, and I think we might start to see um, institutions that are run by other brands, which we're already seeing providing financial services that that are kind of banking, but in just a very, very different way. Yeah, I love. Yeah, I love the prospect that the entire landscape is going to shift. Um, Bruno, same question. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. And and it's it's interesting that last time I came here, we we're discussing if uh, the term banked or unbanked it's something that's relevant today. So in terms of you know the creation of the word of it, so I, I really believe within that that finance you're going to see financial services going further, uh, and that's that's the the cool stuff. It's not only about the players that you identify as as banks. So in many cases we see like this. So, so the situation in which banks are not accessing and reaching to some specific public uh, consumers because it's not profitable enough. But when you operate that into uh, so many different types of ecosystems, maybe with creativity and this possibility of going further with financial services, you can really make that happen and, and make inclusion happen. So that's it. Really nice. And then Ida, final word to you. Yeah, I I do think that the potential to change uh, not just the product model, but the revenue models. Um, uh, my, being sure that we're mindful of consumer protections, all of that in the mix. I, I think that, I think that there's a, this is really a transformational, the, probably the first, the first inflection point of technology and finance that could be transformational for inclusion. Again, uh, that's going to be a choice we make. It's not just going to happen by accidentally or just if we just let it leave it alone there's going to need to be people pushing for uh, inclusion to be front and center as one of the goals of how we use the opportunity of this technology innovation and the ability to kind of bundle in different ways on different platforms i, I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic uh and i think that part of the way that we're going to get there is having different kinds of people in the rooms uh, from the very design phase of this. And, and increasingly, I think also making sure that policy regulators understand this because part of what we're gonna be bundling are things that are products and services that are regulated by an entirely different entities. And so if we wanna take full advantage of this, we're gonna to need to have some pretty, pretty um, uh, interesting tables of stakeholders uh, right from the get-go to, to make this work. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think the really nice thing is that like, designing products and models that are inclusive and inclusive either to your point right from that design phase so we're designing in a way that is inclusive not tacking it on at the end and and that I, I guess embrace sort of economic empowerment I think that benefits everyone right yes it solves an acute problem around financial exclusion but I think actually everybody stands to benefit from those 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 products being being more inclusive and sort of having more people engaged in uh, formal financial services. Um, okay, excellent. Well, that wraps up um, today's discussion. Um, thank you all so much for joining me. I'm going to go around the room one final time um, and just ask you all where people can find out a little bit more about you and, and, and your respective companies. So, David, again, let's start with you. We're going to head over to 11ofhurst.com. Um, and actually, we've just released an explainer video um, on um, embedded finance marketplaces. So go ahead and check that out on YouTube. Yeah. 
Exactly. It's an incredibly accessible explainer. So I would definitely underline that recommendation. Um, Bruno, how about you? Well, I'm very active in LinkedIn. So uh, just search me there, Bruno Genies, and uh, I'll be there sharing some knowledge and stuff. Excellent. Knowledge and stuff. Um, and Ida, how about you? Yeah, you can also find me on LinkedIn. And then Aspen's financial security program is aspenfsp.org. Uh, we're active on Twitter. Uh, we're active in that space. So, um, and just reach out to me directly. I'm happy to happy to talk and, and happy to be a part of this conversation. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Ida. Um, and you can find me at Ross Gallagher 7 on Twitter. So thanks for listening. Um, if you like what you've heard, uh, subscribe to our podcast. Please don't forget to leave us a review because it really does help us to make the show better and it also helps other people to find it. As always, if you want to join the conversation, do find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.